0: Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale.
1: It is the 17th anniversary of uh, what is considered the most diabolical bank robbery homicide in uh, American history, and it happened in Erie, Pennsylvania. And our guests are Dr. Jerry Clark. He's the chairperson and associate professor of the criminal justice program at Gannon University, was the lead special agent for the FBI. How you doing, Jerry?
0: Good to see you, Joel.
1: And we've got Ed Palatella. He's uh, the investigative reporter from the Erie Times News and author, uh, co-author with Jerry on the, uh, the book uh, Pizza Bomber, The Untold Story of America's Most Shocking Bank Robbery. How are you doing, Ed?
2: All right, Joel. Thanks for having us. Nice to see you again.
1: Absolutely. Uh, last time you guys were here in the studio, we were talking about uh, the lamb uh, on the lamb. Are you, are you guys working on a book right now?
2: not at the moment we have some ideas but as you know there's been a lot going on lately
1: so. <laughs> there there definitely has been all right um let let's 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 go back to 2003 and let's explain the basics for our audience because honestly i probably have listeners that were not even born the day of the pizza bomber so um let's go over the heist again uh let's start with you Ed. what what uh, what exactly is the essence of this crime?
2: Well, at, at the heart of it, it's a, a bank robbery and a homicide. You have um, Brian Wells, who was um, kind of coerced someone into robbing a bank with a bomb around his neck. It was the former PNC bank up on Peach Street, up past the mall. And um, he, robbed, he robbed the bank, and then he was the bomb was detonated. When he walked out of the bank, and then it became a, a as you said, a bizarre murder mystery that involved uh, individuals the likes of whom you would never expect to see anywhere, let alone in Erie, Pennsylvania. So,
1: and yeah, and Jerry, again, you, your background is this—you uh, know, criminal psychology. Um, the the characters involved in this heist. Again, as indicted by the federal government, include Marjorie Deal Armstrong, who had literally murdered, what, three, four men? I, I can't—it's I, hard to even count. You know, you, uh, the, she had the boyfriend. She had the husband who who died mysteriously. She had James Roden and and then basically was behind the death of Brian Wells. I mean, that's four men right there. Um Talk about these characters for a bit.
0: Well, as you said, Joel, she's maybe uh, has had death around her all the way back to uh, the 70s and 80s. And certainly you can attribute potentially five uh, dead men to her. So that puts her in a very unique category of a a female serial killer. Um, But if you look at this, and it's funny, you talk about 17 years ago and how many people remember it and such. I taught this morning my investigative concept class. And I said, hey, it's the 17-year anniversary of the case we talk about a lot. And I said, how many of you, you know, remember exactly where you were? And then I had to catch myself and I realized, oh my God, they were three. Oh, Uh, yeah. Three years old at the time. And and, and I have a a 20-year-old daughter who was three. So uh, I, I realized that this case has really moved down uh, a long period of time since it happened. But the characters, uh, like Ed had mentioned, were very unique. And the fact that they all found each other to put this scheme and plan together in this really, uh, you know, diabolical, as you described, way uh, is what makes it so unique, the characters, without a doubt.
1: All right, and we're going to get into it because what I want to do is frame our conversation today because the last time we talked, we said – I need you guys to pick apart what to uh, this, this Netflix uh, "Evil Genius" series, and so you said you would be willing to. So we're gonna go through the four episodes, and that'll help us explain it better. While I ask you questions of, you know, things that I found that were quite uh, yeah, quite revealing from the series, and maybe maybe didn't match up with the book, and so on. So uh, let's start with who is this. Trey Borzilleri, who is that?
0: Yeah, um, Trey Borzilleri was uh, a guy who was not really working, but was in the field of, uh, I guess, um, you know, putting uh, documentaries together. But has, you know, and to his own admission, he was sitting on his couch in Buffalo uh, when this happened, and somehow became fascinated with the case and. Uh, decided one day that he was going to drive to Erie and see what he could find out. And that's literally his involvement. He had zero knowledge of the case when he first got here, and then he started to try to piece things together and get people to talk to him, specifically Marjorie Deal Armstrong.
1: Did, did he have any background, Ed, like in uh, true crime, you know, uh, film productions or so on? or?
2: Well, film, well, definitely. I mean, he was involved in, you know, filmmaking, uh, you know, at a certain level, but I think he was just fascinated by true crime, in, in this case, and then he, uh, you know, he stuck with it. So when he was there. He was there throughout the trial, I believe. Jerry wasn't he? He was
0: there yeah, for, He, he did actually attend trial. He he didn't, um, uh, you know, have much involvement prior to that. He had tried to talk to a few people. Uh, had made requests from the FBI. Of course, we couldn't answer any of his questions. Um, but at the trial, he definitely was in the um, gallery behind Marjorie.
1: I was going to say, he was a sympathetic ear for Marjorie D.L. Armstrong. So uh, the reason why I'm bringing him up is basically he seems to be the creator of the Netflix series, which, again, it's, does it surprise you that literally how popular that, the, uh, that this story on film has become uh, to really the world?
0: Yeah, I gotta say, um, I mean, obviously, we knew we, the story is just one that's so hard. Three dead uh, individuals within three weeks in, in one case, and then making the links between the three deaths and how crazy they all were, and the whole freezer incident, and so yeah, it was crazy. But to to think that it got to this level uh, through Netflix was just something I never anticipated.
1: Yeah. All right, so we're gonna talk start with. Uh... With the with the first uh, the first episode, it's called the heist. Alrighty, and so they basically explain that uh, Brian Wells uh, received a phone call at the Mamma Mia's Pizza. Uh, actually, the call I guess went to the owner, and the owner gives it gives the phone to Brian, and it's for what is it a, like a medium pepperoni or a sausage and cheese pizza?
2: Sausage and pepperoni.
1: Sausage and pepperoni. Sausage and pepperoni. Oh my gosh! Yes. And and um, he delivers it to a television tower, which, again, they had to put a gate up on, you know, recently in the last few years. Because uh, after Evil Genius came out, people started splunking and grabbing, you know, dirt samples of the site and whatever. <laughs> it's insane. But, uh, you know, he, he delivers the pizza and uh, they come out uh, and we're, we're thinking that uh, – it was either what Ken Barnes or or Floyd Stockton, you know, put the collar bomb on on Brian. Uh, Marjorie Deal puts a uh, a shirt over his head, this guess shirt, which is crazy, and they give him this note, and he's supposed to try to rob the PNC Bank and then do this this bizarre um, scavenger hunt. Um, and then what happens is. Uh, the 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 robbery call the silent alarm goes off. PSB, the Pennsylvania State Police, pull Brian over at the um, eye, eyeglass world, and that's where the bomb actually detonates and Brian is killed and the the plot is over. So, what did I miss right there?
0: No, I mean that that sort of summarizes the whole beginning and two things, Joel. Again, that I always touch on when I talk about this, even on a day like in an anniversary, you know, somebody's family member died in a horrific manner. And in fact, there were three horrific deaths in this case. Um, So I never forget and lose sight of the fact that these are victims, uh, whether they're involved or not, we can talk a lot about that, but it doesn't matter. It's still a death and it, it still was a horrific way to die. And so I feel for the families and I feel for their loss, even on anniversaries, where it's even higher, they have to relive it again. So that's a, that's a tough, tough thing to do. So yeah, they determined that he did de- deliver the pizzas, that he was at the tower site, he got the device it, uh, affixed to his neck and then was given to, uh, directions on how to go to the bank, rob the bank and then go on a series of stops to receive keys to unlock the collar to get the collar bomb off of his neck.
1: And again, according to your reporting, Ed, there, there, you know, the FBI concluded after months of investigation that there was no way he would ever survive. That this bomb was not uh, set up for him to survive it. Correct.
2: Yeah. If he if he took the route, which I know Jerry did any number of times. I mean, he would not have enough time. I mean, there wasn't. There was the two timers on there, and he would have gotten more time if he would have pulled the key out for the other timer, but clearly he didn't understand that. And even if he did pull the other timer out, you know, start the other timer, there's a question of whether he would have had enough time. So, I mean, the whole thing was so crazy. Just think of all, all the things that would have, had to ha- would have had to have had gone right for him to survive. He would have had to have gotten out of the bank with no one setting the alarm driven on the p street with no one stopping him got on the Peach street which was very you know very busy crazy busy at that time of day got onto the highway made all these stops without you know following all these directions without any any interruptions i mean come on who's going to be able to do that yeah. and, and you have to remember too of course this was 17 years ago this was before cell phones and and video cams. I mean, can you imagine if this happened today? I mean, you would have had a, you probably would have had a video of him all the way from the bank to when he was blown up or he'd it, it, just been crazy. So, no, I, I mean, what do you think, Jerry? He was never really meant to survive.
0: Well, the telltale, the telltale to that and to, to pick up where Ed was, there were no keys at any of the stops that he was wow. to go to. So, I mean, that tells you in and of itself that the device was not meant to come off. All right, so
1: uh, we and it, there's some really um incredible things happening immediately after the explosion, meaning that actually uh people start uh, you, I don't know which investigated force was it either state police or the FBI but they started down the rabbit trail, the uh you know, the you know, following the direction to see if they could find the evidence right away, like almost immediately, right, Jerry?
0: Oh, absolutely. So first of all, Pennsylvania State Police did a a marvelous job in the felony car stop and and pulling over Mr. Wells, identifying him and then realizing it was a device, uh, you know, and waiting for the bomb squad, which we were doing. That's when the conversation's taking place between the PSP and uh, Mr. Wells. That's when I arrive and I set up a spot and I'm listening to the conversation But after it detonated, of course, there's chaos and you're trying to figure out what you have. Then the next thing you want to do, and and quite honestly what we were doing while he was sitting uh, waiting for the bomb squad, we had already sent agents and investigators to the pizza shop and were trying to determine where the call came from. Then once uh, we determined that the call had originated from a certain spot, we were able to know where that was. And then we wanted to do the series of stops to see what we'd find at each of those locations.
1: And this is all happening in the afternoon and evening of that, of that day. One of the things that came out of the, the movie is that there was a blue van that investigators said they saw on the other side of the field or the woods at the McCain exit. Um, what can you say about that? Was that a missing uh, piece of evidence?
0: You know, Joel, there's uh, a few things in Netflix that really were liberties that were taken. And,
1: and that's and why we, we wanted you guys on, so go for and it.
0: The van is one of them. All right. Yeah. Specifically, we we knew the blue van was in Bill Rothstein's driveway. It had two or three flat tires. It wasn't drivable at, at the point that we knew it was there. Uh, what we had seen that day and what was witnessed was a white van that was seen moving away from the last site where the McCain Township sign is on I-79 heading southbound, and they could see the white van through the field. Somehow that mysteriously got turned into the blue van, and the blue van was sitting in his driveway. So that was an absolute uh, add-on uh, by by the Netflix. Uh,
1: and so this is why we're having this show, otherwise known as FBI Major Case Number 203. So I'm, I've got to ask, uh, gentlemen, why did the... Pennsylvania State Police, not call an ambulance. Uh, like, where were first responders, even while uh, Brian was being detained uh, at, at gunpoint by the by the state police?
0: Well, actually, Joel, they were on scene. The problem is in a situation like that, uh, especially with uh, intermittent explosive devices, IEDs, you really have to anticipate that there could be a secondary device and so the fact that we had to make sure absolutely make sure that no other first responders would be hurt because if you see actually when the device first goes off the Pennsylvania state police really want to go in and take a look actually we all did and then we were you know all yelling to get back get back for a secondary device so really that was for the safety and security of the
1: first responders so so they so like Perry Highway was somewhere close or were they getting well, there they, Okay. Yeah, exactly.
0: And again, Peach Street was blocked off, but they were getting up to the scene, and uh, so we had people on scene. It was just immediately the danger that they could have been involved with the secondary device. All right. Well,
2: and plus Joel, if they had, if they had, if anyone had gotten up to Brian Wells before that bomb went off, that bomb was boomy-trapped in five different ways to Sunday. So, I mean, if anyone would have, if anyone from Perry Highway or whatever would have gone up there and touched that thing, It would have gone off, yeah. and um, you know quite a few people probably would have been killed. So what about what
1: about thing. after the what about after though the the what about after the, the detonation was there any was there any attempt to resuscitate or I mean who made that determination?
2: Whole, he had a hole blown in his chest about the size of a paperback book. So I mean he was he was dead immediately right Jerry I mean he was
0: yeah and and once uh they made an approach which our bomb squad did uh they were able to determine that um unfortunately he was he was deceased
1: All right I've got to move quickly here um what do you think uh w- you know when you're looking at a prima facie what was the motive for the collar bomber like uh I mean, what? And again, this is something that comes up out of the out of the uh, the the movie that no motive was established.
0: Yeah, and that's another clearly inaccurate statement because the motive was clearly established. Marjorie Deal Armstrong, uh, she really, really wanted her inheritance, and uh, so she wanted to have her father killed. Ken Barnes said he would kill her father, but needed money down. There were. We're going to yeah. rob the bank to get the money to pay Ken Barnes to kill her father, to get the inheritance. So there really was motive established. Now each individual player had different motives. You know, Ken Barnes was looking for money. Bill Rossi was looking for money. And Marjorie was looking for the big pile of money, but it definitely was a motive that was established. alright
1: Let's let's move to episode two, the frozen body. So three weeks, mind you. And again, Ed, Ed, had you uh, had you jumped on the story soon after? When did you jump on this story?
2: Yeah, pretty much. we were all kind of on it. All hands on deck for a while. You're doing yeah, team so coverage. I was, uh, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, I was working the night that they found the uh, body in the freezer. I remember that. Wow. And, um, they found Jerry. They found um, um, um Brian's friend. Um. What's his name? Uh, Panini. Panini. Panini.
0: That was yeah. on a Sunday, right? Yeah, Sunday? so, yeah, Thursday was the the August 28, 2003, and then Sunday uh, we get the call that uh, a second pizza delivery driver was uh, now deceased from the overdose. Um, so, yeah, it was actually from Thursday to Sunday.
1: So you were working Sunday night, Ed, at, at, at the no, newsroom? I
0: was
2: working whatever day it was when they uh, – when they turn up um, ruins body in the freezer.
1: And that was about three weeks uh, later, right? Isn't that when uh, Bill Rothstein started calling Pennsylvania State Police? Um, When did FBI find out about those phone calls to PSP?
0: Uh, Right away. So that's one of those things that we were cooperating with because of his location. You know, uh, 8631 and 8645 they, they basically share the same driveway on peach street. So, uh, we got notified exactly that there was a, a, a call. And, uh, that's when I responded to the Pennsylvania state police barracks, uh, after going to the house initially. And then I could interview bill Rostin, and that was September 21st. Uh, like you said, about three weeks later, 2003.
1: Again, with your understanding of Marjorie, uh, Jerry Clark, could she really have that kind of control over Bill Rothstein and his psyche to to have him dispose a body for her?
0: Yeah, that was one of those initial mysteries, you know, that Bill Rothstein was able to basically, you know, say, why would I bring a guy down this lane to deliver a pizza when it's right next door to my house and I have a dead body in the freezer? So, you know, anyone in their right mind is thinking, oh, that can't be possible But that's the way he thought and that's how he thought it would be so obvious that they wouldn't believe it so uh marjorie was very sharp and very manipulative but you got to understand bill rawstein had a really dark side to him and so while somebody else might say hey i might you know help you do something you know steel cable or something i'm not going to move a dead body from your house and that's where his dark side came into play
1: Ed, do you think that maybe the cancer made him lose his uh, control?
2: I think, he, I think he knew all along that he was going to die fairly soon. So he figured he'd probably die before this case is over. Yeah. I certainly, but also on Jerry's point, I think he was genuinely afraid that she was going to kill him. Yeah. He was going to blow him away with a shotgun. Um, and, you know, he wanted to die on his own terms. I don't think he wanted to
1: die that way. We have with us here uh, the authors of uh, The Pizza Bomber, The Untold Story of America's Most Shocking Bank Robbery, Dr. Jerry Clark, the lead FBI investigator on the case, and Ed Palatella, investigative reporter for the Erie Times News and GoErie.com. Gentlemen, uh, let's continue on with the questions here. Um, what are your thoughts about Rothstein's suicide attempt? A- again, uh, was that real, Ed?
2: No, no, it was just a. We just threw that in there to try to divert attention from it, but it wasn't real. I mean, it made no sense. Uh, the, the whole note made no sense, and he wasn't despondent in any way. I mean, if you if you watch the video of him leading the uh you know detectives through his house, where you know, when he have having, his garbage, Jerry, a liver or? kidney or something,
0: right? Yeah, he had, he had an animal liver in his right. garbage, which uh, initially threw us for a real loop, if you find that on a search warrant. But <laughs> yeah, he had he had no intention, quite honestly, of ever committing suicide. He was such a narcissist, and it was just a, like Ed said, a distraction technique to keep us off track.
1: Yeah, he's, he was all about kind of uh, doing the double psycho, you know, trying to keep you spinning.
0: Absolutely. He was a gamesman. Right. Any of his friends would tell you he was always you know joking. William D. Schmuck was his name in the phone book, remember? And he just always was playing people in, in some fashion.
1: All right, I got to ask you, I'm just going to throw this out there, but FBI agent Bob Rudge does not come out very well in the movie Evil Genius. Was he too closed off to early evidence that could have led to earlier indictments? He's the one who said that James Rowan case was not related to this.
0: Um, You know, that's a difficult question because Bob Rudge is is one of the nicest and and greatest agents. Um, Good friend of mine had a lot to do with me getting transferred back to Erie, but Bob, uh, you know, was listening also to some of our behavioral analysis people. So it wasn't just his thoughts on that. I was actually with, you know, Pennsylvania state police, um, uh, Dave Gluth and Jim Brown um, and and Jason Wick, we were the ones interviewing these people. So for interviewers, we had the uh, ability to you know, have firsthand direct intuition from things because we were actually talking to these people. So uh, it was easier for us to make that link. For them, it just didn't seem like a good fit for somebody to want to do something like that, uh, that close to where he has a dead body and is freezing.
1: But again, uh, Ed, this is the whole diabolical thinking that you're smarter than everybody else in the room kind of deal,
2: right? Right. Well, and then he, uh, you know, he certainly fit the profile of pack rat and all that stuff. But I think Jerry has made an excellent point that it was so in your face that who would ever think that someone would stage a a, a bank robbery or put a bomb on someone right down the street? Right. You know, right down the a dirt road from from your house. house when he's got a dead body in the freezer, I and mean, it makes no sense. It's kind of like you know you you expect people to hide things. Well, all this was in plain sight, which was I think very difficult for people to comprehend at, at, you know at the time, understandably.
1: Do you remember when that first FBI press conference was made and they made that list of the, of the profile? And I, I'll, I'll never forget on, again on the evil genius movie, they're showing the channel 35 Chiron and, and it's like an exact uh, personality profile of Bill right.
0: I've said it many times and I talk about it in class here again. And it was basically a biography of Bill Rossi I mean, Uh, You know, probably was a shop teacher. Probably had a uh, some sort of shop in his in his residence. uh, Had made bombs in the past. Was a pack rat. You know, I mean, if you list all the things, it was it was him. It was clearly him.
1: All right. So let's move on to number three, the suspects. So, in your opinion, did Bill win? Did Bill Rossing outsmart the FBI?
0: You know, I'd have say no to that because uh, we eventually knew the whole story long before we went to trial obviously but then even at trial to prevent and and or, or present I should say present evidence uh, beyond a reasonable doubt is a very high burden and if you attended trial you will know that we have the right people we have the right evidence and we got to the truth so in the long run Bill Rothstein might have got away with it prior to his death, but certainly after death, he's now known as a co-conspirator. Yeah. You know, I
2: think he I think he outsmarted the DA's office in terms of Roden's death. I mean he, he wasn't prosecuted for that. They could have prosecuted him for any number of things, including, you know, um, abuse of the corpse, covering up evidence, but he convinced them that he was critical to that case and he would testify against her where they really didn't need the keys. They you know, he just worked out a great deal with them. And that was not the first time he did that. He did that in the Alessi murder from in the 70s. So he was very practiced in doing that. So I think he, uh, and actually Deal Armstrong got a great deal from the DA's office too. I mean, you shoot a guy in the back when he's sleeping in bed and you don't need a life sentence. I mean, come on.
0: So that was, uh, that was
2: she did, did quite a good job there. What do you think,
0: Jerry? Yeah, she only—I mean, she was sentenced to seven and a half to twenty years. So if we—it's incredible. Have her in the pizza bomber, she could have got out, uh, certainly on the murder of Broden.
2: Right, and that was about as cold blood as you can get. I mean, the guys, sleeping in bed. Ben's got his back to her,
0: she walks up and
2: blows him away with a shotgun. I mean, you know.
1: And again, the motive there—that uh, wasn't presented at trial, mind you, because she pled guilty, insane. But the motive that, is, uh, that you guys conclude is that she was qu- shutting him up because he was going to go to the police about the, uh, the bank robbery plot, right?
0: Yeah, Roden, according to other witnesses, and again, you're going on information received uh, independently, and that's what you want to do if you're me. You might get that from one person, and, and you might have to get it from another person who independently don't know what they've told you. And that's where you can corroborate things. And co, co- defendants in that case actually told us that Roden did have a role initially, tried to back out and say, I'm going to go to the authorities. And that's why he was killed.
1: Um, let's talk about interagency cooperation. And again, it really comes up in this third episode of Evil Genius that the city cops had tapes from the Roden investigation that did not go to the feds talk about that
0: well what what it boiled down to is there were uh 23 pages of notes that one of the inmates that was incarcerated with marjorie deal armstrong had taken and her name was kelly and kelly mackala had taken those notes and she turned them over to the city and the city were very much interested and i here's the way i sort of justify all this in my mind Joel, without trying to think the worst of everything. yeah, I try to think, well, the city had a homicide case and they were trying to work that. And so they have to keep their information. Um, You know, they also had the death of of, of Panetti and they're trying to figure that one out. That's not an FBI case at that point. And you really have to figure it's my job to take all three of those deaths and turn them into one big case. So while everybody's focused on solving their own case, things were not necessarily shared that would have been timely and, and helpful.
1: I see. Uh, and, it, and again, Ed, I, I'm just thinking of you guys at the newsroom. Like, how is this, is it all, I mean, are you drawing the, are you putting the pictures on the wall and and doing the yarn lines at the and all this stuff? Uh, how is this playing out at, at the times at 12th and SAS? I
2: mean, pretty much we're just trying to lay everything out and figure Trying to determine what was what was happening, and we, we had reason to believe, of course, that Ross team was involved just based on what the FBI had. But it really wasn't until the um it really wasn't until the search of um the search of um Barnes's house that that we figured we we, we really started putting everything together. And then I got a I got a tip about Jessica Hoopsick. Okay, um, and that really once we could connect her in Barnes, that pulled everything together. So, but before that, I mean, you know, there there was a lot of, there wasn't much happening publicly in this case for years, which was frustrating. But I mean, and then, you know, and then once the grand jury convened, we kind of figured that out and we were able to track things, you know, that way by just, you know, by seeing who was walking in and out of the federal courthouse at times. So, but it was drip, drip, drip. I mean, certainly Jerry wasn't sharing any information with us, as you would expect. <laughs> right. We weren't sharing any information with the FBI, as you would expect. So, um, yeah, we, we were trying to piece everything together. But, you know, it was just so bizarre. But, I mean, once once Roland's body was found in the freezer, and then the Armstrong and her past and how it all seemed to be, you know, a repeat performance for her, I mean, it all seemed to point. But like Jerry said, a big part of it was her her incompetence. I mean, yeah. that just held everything up for years, not being able to interview her. And plus to the credit, you know, the FBI's credit, they, they knew where all these people were. He's in prison. Rossi's under Rossi's dead. But she's in prison. Barnes they have an eye on. It's not like these people are out there, you know, in, in some kind of crime spree. They certainly knew where they were.
0: Well, quite honestly, this is, unless you have to take a break. No, go. Yeah. This is the most frustrating part for the investigators. Pennsylvania State Police, Erie Police, uh, the, the, the ATF with Jason Wick and myself, we, we knew probably September 21st, 2003, three weeks later after interviewing Rostin that these people are involved. So to the credit of the invest, especially Pennsylvania State Police, they absolutely knew, and so did Erie Police, But the problem was, again, Jason Wick really described it well on the series, what you can prove and what you know may be two different things. And so we had to put together the evidence. And then again, to the investigators credit, Marjorie's initially declared incompetent. We can't even interview her from 2003 to 2005. Then when she comes back, we interview her immediately. And between late 2005 and early 2007, we do the indictments. So she's indicted, then we can't go to trial until 2010 because she's declared incompetent by judge McLaughlin. Yeah. So really we knew the process, we knew what we were doing, it was just the system you had to follow.
1: I got I got to speed ahead to the episode 4 the cons- the confessions and again the the imagery of ken barnes with the coffee can and the cigarette is yeah. just really incredible. Oh my word, but you know, he said – now, Ken says Brian Wells was not at Rothstein's the day before. And well, and if a witness almost ran into the delivery car the day before, could he have been just delivering a pizza is the question.
0: No, here, here's, the, here's the deal on that. Ken Barnes, Floyd Stockton, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, all place – and again, this is all independent of each other – all said Brian Wells was at a pre-planning meeting. All three of them oh. clearly stated that he was there our witness having him leave this, the site also put him there. So he was clearly there. So, and and when Ken Barnes goes on, if you hear that Netflix, he basically sees, he, they say to him something about, well, then it's a chance he wasn't there that day. And he, he said, no, all he it was no. But, and and Jessica says, well, I was with him most of the day. So he couldn't have been there. Well, there was time that you weren't with him and he was there. Mm. so. She changed her story. They got Ken sort of manipulated at the end, but firmly all these witnesses saw him there prior.
1: So Ed, w- what is you so the conclusion for the culpability of Brian Wells is that he knew about it, but he really didn't know what was gonna happen or they or that it was fake or what what is your thoughts on that?
2: Well think, Jerry, but I mean the, the belief certainly the evidence pointing to that he was all on board with robbing the bank um, and he was all on board wearing a fake bomb but once the bomb was real then he tried to back out but he he was in on the bank robbery and that, that's why they didn't pursue the death penalty. Um, yeah. I mean, he was part of that he was a co-conspirator.
0: Joel was, I, I, I thank you Ed I, I, I rest myself on this and this is what makes me feel 100% confident what the evidence led us to when he arrives back there the next day i'm confident he wasn't sure that it was going to happen that day he knew he was going to help rob the bank at some point Mm. when they call him the next day and he shows up he's confused that's why he's asking for the money to pay for the for the pizza but here's where here's where everything breaks down marjorie tells him tell them a group of black men, put this around your neck and rob the bank. When he goes and robs the bank, if he's not cooperating, he's saying, this is Marjorie, this is Bill, this is Ken, this is Floyd, but he stayed with the story that they gave him. And that to me indicates that he had knowledge of and some involvement in. Now, was he tricked? You better believe it. He had no idea it was real he had no idea that he was going to die that day and i firmly believe that also
1: and again uh, if i mean people say that there was the gunshot or rossin or rote or whoever uh you know shot in right. the air floyd stockton you know that whole thing of the threat um yes. yeah really really diabolical and just just awful um Again, uh, so speak to Jessica Hoopsick. You, you, Hoopsick, you think she changed her tune for the for the TV cameras?
0: Here's my thought on Jessica, and I've, I've interviewed her so many times, several times in a state of addiction that we, we couldn't even get her to make a lucid statement. So we'd have to take her to a, some treatment center or, or uh, home for a wayward uh, you know, people that are abused and, and drop her off and then try to go back and interview her. So, but when we did get information from her, it was that, yes, I introduced Brian to these people. What happened is I think she started to really feel guilty about making that introduction and then felt like she wanted to go back and cover Brian because he was a very nice man. All indications were that he was, and she felt bad about it. And and that's where the guilt came into play.
1: Ed, uh, again, the movie saying that there might have even been love, or that she even had Brian's baby. I mean, any of that I'm real?
2: Never able to confirm that, that that Brian had a son. I mean, I, you know, I and mean, then where is the baby? I mean, I, you know, I'd right like and see the baby, or you know, it, it was just kind of out of left field. And that whole stuff about oh, well, I wasn't. Can they try these people in, in state court, try them for first degree murder? No, they can't. I mean, ultimately it's like, okay, what's the point? I mean, he's in prison for the rest of her life, right? I mean, now she's dead. Barnes was going to be in prison for the rest of his life. I just couldn't figure out what they were trying to get at here. I mean, what What? I
0: mean, yeah. And that's it, a great it? point. Right. Because they got hung up on this thing that, well, nobody was charged with the, the murder of Brian Wells. Well. Uh, using a destructive device resulting in death during the commission of a bank robbery is the same exact, it's just different semantics, it's terminology, Mm. It's, it's a life sentence. And we did not want to get into the death penalty with a person that had been declared incompetent because you never want to challenge whether or not somebody was put to death because of their mental illness. So we just didn't charge it that way. We charged it as a conspiracy to commit bank robbery using the destructive device resulting in death, which was effectively the same exact thing as a homicide charge. I mean, I do have some background, a master's degree in forensic psychology. And and, and so I I know a lot about mental illness and um, clearly there was a discussion over bipolar or not bipolar. Certainly she had multiple personality disorders, right? So borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, Um, she had, uh, the question or not of whether she was ever fully bipolar now a lot of people will say she was we had one psychologist come in and say she wasn't and that it had just been ruled out all those years and because they had never seen a depressed side of her right like manic and depressed uh manic definitely hypomanic definitely but nobody had really seen a depressed side so not sure on that one
1: I, I would imagine that the company that does uh, all the collection for the collect calls made a fortune on Marjorie, as, as <laughs> she was calling every. Well, how she called you every day, right,
2: Ed? Every day, sometimes more than once a day. So, yeah.
1: Did you did did your boss ever show you the bill?
2: No, well, I, they asked. No, not really. I mean, they asked initially what you know what was going on, but right. you know nothing.
1: Can you guys explain uh, how Robert Panetti was involved with this? What was his role?
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, this is another thing that Netflix glosses over because if you believe Robert Panetti had a part of this, then you couldn't possibly have him in the show because uh, they're saying Brian didn't have a part, so Panetti couldn't have a part also. So Panetti's role basically was And this is according to the co-defendants, not according to Jerry Clark or Jason Wick or Dave Bluth. Uh, It basically was, he was to make sure that Brian kept participating in the plan to, to, to rob the bank. And so he was gonna be given a sum of money to make sure Brian kept going. And he was there the day they put it on him and was a witness to him getting the device put around his neck.
1: And and then from that either he had an accidental overdose or, or he committed some kind of an overdose suicide.
0: Wow. Or Ken Barnes gave him something to relax him that was known to be a less lethal uh, drug, and that's that's what that happened.
1: Yeah, he's probably the 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 most un. You know the the most unrealized uh, victim of this whole thing. Uh, again, another human dies because of this uh, diabolical plot. So, so who's still alive? Is it just Jessica and Floyd Stockton? I mean, is everyone else uh, around this case pretty much passed?
0: That would mean it, right, Jerry? Everybody's now deceased except for Floyd Stockton and Jessica Hoopson.
1: Those are the only two left. Unreal. Art, it's
0: it's put a bad karma on me. Uh, also. So she said um, that she was going to follow me with. So I've had that to deal with mentally for the rest of my life.
1: Oh my gosh. I got to wrap things up. I appreciate again, uh, just the information and the insights of of really what is now history. It's part of Erie, Pennsylvania's history. Unfortunately, it's uh, what people think of sometimes. It, other than uh, Lake Effects, no, they think of the Pizza Bomber when they think of Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, Ed Palatella, Dr. Jerry Clark. Thank you guys so so much.
0: You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from talkeerie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at talkerie.com.